0: Great palette of colour. Life is full of these grey areas, it's not just black and white. An identity-forming experience. You are listening to Eastside Radio Podcast, with discussions and insights on art, politics, music and more, here on eastsidefm.org. If you are still seated, I'd be very surprised.
1: We're having a very optimistic show today. Sometimes we have to bring so much bad news or so much conversation about challenging issues, I I suppose is a better way of putting it, because we are inundated with so-called bad news, and that is really a cycle of uh, 24-7 media, which we don't pursue here on Monday Drive, but we do like to face the hard facts Very important. So we're going to do that in a way with the next guest, and that's Dr. Felicity Dean, who I said at the top of the show is Associate Professor at the Queensland University of Technology, and she's extremely erudite when it comes to how economics and the law intersect, in particular regarding emissions trading and other forms of market-based mechanisms. So if you're finding that all very confusing, what people are talking about, we've just been discussing with the previous guest, Sebedee Nichols, um, the pledges that were made at the UN COP26 just at the end of last year, um, how are some of these pledges actually being implemented, and are they actually working? So, I'd like to welcome Dr. Felicity Dean to Monday Drive. Hello, Felicity. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Ruth. How are you? It's, I can hear all of that. Yeah. Well, that's good that you didn't. That I didn't lose you because it was uh, right on target there about what we want to be thinking about with the election coming up and some of the. Uh, mechanisms that different governments are pursuing to try and allow some of this addressing of what's happening to the planet to actually drill down into practical policy. And something that you have recently been looking at is biodiversity stewardship and how that works. It's a great idea to think about incentivizing our rural areas and our farmers into preserving biodiversity, changing their approach to soil, um, doing all sorts of things like associative planting, bringing back more no- native species and restoring uh, cover, vegetative cover to the land so that the soil stays in place and all the critters can work. But as we've seen with accelerating... Um, deforestation across Australia and in particular New South Wales and Queensland have been chopping down a lot of trees. Um, Some of that biodiversity stewardship is not actually filtering through. There are some amazing innovations happening on the land with regenerative farmers. But in terms of incentivising from government and the sort of policy that does make it possible for people to change and to transition, where are we at in Australia at the moment?
0: Um, Well, I couldn't agree more with everything you've just said, Ruth. No,
1: good. (laughs)
0: Excellent excellent summary. Um, So where are we? Well, basically, everything's been put on hold at the moment for the election. Of course, Mm. everybody's aware of this. Prior to the election, back in February, um, the Morrison government introduced the Agriculture Stewardship Bill. So that bill was designed to basically introduce a market for biodiversity credits in Australia. It's not really been done on well it hasn't been done on australia in this scale before and the idea is that it'll encourage farmers by creating another source of income for them to start that regenerative farming or the stewardship behaviors that can lead to better biodiversity outcomes
1: okay well that sounds like a good idea how practical is it and and are there any um, problems in the application of this, like what, when we drill down to it, how is it actually supposed to work?
0: Okay, so, well, well that, that, there's a lot to it, of course, and the devil is going to be in the detail. Mm. And as usual, we don't have all of the detail, but we've got some of it. Um, and in terms of, you know, the positive aspects to it, so the economic theory behind it is, well, if you have um, biodiversity in your landscape that's potentially going to cost the farmers quite a bit of money. You know, regenerative farming stewardship does cost money, but the benefits are completely widespread. So, arguably, the cost should be widespread. So, that's the theory behind it. The disadvantages, well, potentially it could be more of the same. You know, um, agriculture has been a problem for biodiversity because, obviously, people do the thing that creates the most money and that can lead to less biodiversity in the landscape. You don't necessarily... Um, do the things that can lead to more and more species. You'll do the things that's most profitable and there's a bit of a fear that, you know, this sort of perverse outcome could happen with this type of scheme. Um, and the other concern um, that I had in particular when I saw this was, okay, they're creating this market. They've figured out the whole idea of supply. So here's the supply it's going to come from the farmers. Um, they can, you know, we'll allow them to have a biodiversity credit for um you know, different types of uh, production techniques and we don't have all of the details and methodologies yet, but what about the demand? I mean who's going to be paying for this and when you start getting into you know the regulation impact statement, you can see that it's potentially going to be reasonably expensive and n- not entirely sure whether there's going to be a lot of um, environmental benefits we hope we hope there will be um, but you know that's a big unknown at this point.
1: So it's 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 confusing isn't it for people trying to understand what biodiversity credits are in the context of as you say agricultural development that's very focused on profit and monocultures basically because what we're talking about is the massive takeover of areas of land which often require the use of a lot of water um, to grow certain crops and that's the opposite of biodiversity. So biodiversity credits, um, they strike me as a little bit like the whole offset controversy. Um mm. There's an idea there that can look good in a certain light, but when you start to drill down, it's much more complicated than that.
0: Uh, I couldn't agree with that more. Again, that's an excellent summary. It is I mean, ecosystems are inherently complicated. Um, I'm not an agricultural scientist, but sometimes I feel like I, I really wish I'd done science when I went to university instead of completely focusing on law and commerce, to be honest, because it does get really, really complicated. And this idea that it can be solved without you know a big strategic plan for Australia um, or even for areas um, it confuses me and I'm not quite sure how it's going to have you know the benefits that they are wanting to have
1: so that that really interests me because I think that's actually what's been missing from a lot of the conversation at the moment in terms of the different parties um, is a big strategic plan for Australia mm-hmm
0: Oh I completely agree there's been a lot missing from those conversations though Ruth I think Um, but certainly when it comes to agriculture um, uh, I mean I sat and watched the press press club address where they had the shadow minister and the minister on there talking and and I had more questions than were answered that's for sure and, and that's usually the case with these things but I just was unsure what the Labor government were proposing for their policies I was unsure where the Liberal government were going to go forward with theirs and certainly there was not the word strategic plan was not mentioned
1: once. Hmm. So where does that leave us in terms of what farmers are looking at in terms of their own strategic planning in the coming decades? Well
0: I don't want to be a big downer on farmers and in fact I'm a, I'm a massive fan of a lot of them. A lot of them are doing some incredible things yes. and a lot of them care so much about the environment and I don't want to um, suggest anything different for a second. So a lot of them do do things within their own land and you know some of it is substantial um, You know to make sure that it is going to be better off in years to come um, but in terms of having something that's more concrete, something that's focus more widely where, you know, we're breaking things down and looking at, well, what would be best for this area of land? What should be done here? And I'm not suggesting for one second that that would be an easy thing to do, particularly because it would involve quite a bit of change um, and um, a lot of experts coming together to make decisions about things that um, may or may not be beneficial in the long term. So, you know, there's risk involved as well. Um, but certainly, it's not something that I'm seeing talked about meaningfully at the moment.
1: So, let's look at the marketing aspect of a biodiversity credit, for instance. Mm-hmm. So, say there's a housing project, and this happens every day in Australia, that, yep. and in fact, we've just had some in the news, um, a housing project that requires destroying a forest where koalas live how are the developers um, and maybe it's a farmer that owns that land there might be a development company um, that's coming in to do the housing project how do they go about offsetting that damage so that something comes to the koalas as a benefit from having their habitat (laughs) destroyed which is hard actually to imagine how any benefit can come out of that.
0: Mm. Well, look, it all depends on the project, of course. It depends on where it's taking place. You know, you have to get through state planning laws. You also have to look at whether you're going to have an impact on a matter of national environmental significance because that brings you under the Commonwealth legislation, so the EPBC Act. And if we're talking koalas, then you're going to have to um, make an argument that you're not going to have a significant impact on the koalas' habitat by um, going ahead with that development. If you are going to have a significant impact on that habitat, um, that project should either be refused um, or occasionally they are um, approved with conditions and some of those conditions can be offset. So this was also one of my issues with this scheme is that the argument is, well, the demand for these credits, that will come from the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, that's the Commonwealth Act, Any requirements for offsets can come um, from there. But those offsets, they have to be specific. So like you've just mentioned, if it's having an impact on koala habitat, then you've got to make sure that you do something to regenerate koala habitat, not just to the same extent probably, but significantly more just so you can make sure that species will continue um, without disruption. However, then you also need to make sure that the offsets that are being purchased through the biodiversity credits market, that's going to be specific to that development. Um, And my concern was the matching up of the the needs there. So you've got somebody who needs to sell these biodiversity credits, whether they're going to be the ones that will offset that development um, is yet to be seen and whether there'll be enough demand for those biodiversity credits is yet to be seen. Hmm.
1: And just to give listeners an idea of how complicated this is, because you've just mentioned there are state and federal uh, laws involved here that are quite difficult to navigate at the best of times. Also, from the point of view of the native species, whether they're plants or animals, they're often very terrain-specific. So saying that you're going to do something over here for a population over there um, is not necessarily going to translate. But a lot of this offsetting is based on the idea that you can do that. So it's... um, yeah, there's science there that's, that's uh, being disregarded to some extent.
0: That's right. That, that comes down to the complications of the systems themselves. Mm. Um, and it it's sort of aligns with this idea of carbon trading where um, arguably, and this is arguably, um, you can offset one carbon emission with the sequestration of another. That's not necessarily the same when it comes to biodiversity. You're talking about something far more complicated.
1: Mm. Now, this has been done, I believe, with some degree of success elsewhere. The UK brought something in in 2021 Mm -hmm. that was legislation that declared a net gain in biodiversity was required before a development could receive planning permission. Um, So... uh, how well has that worked there? It's only 2021, so it's pretty hard to tell. Yes, um, and is. and how similar is what's been proposed It's just sitting there, unable to pass through Parliament, um, to that pro- program that was um, passed in the UK? Um,
0: well, OK, so what they've done in the UK is they've introduced two pieces of legislation. We've only got one here in Australia. So the two pieces there, they've got their supply on the one side where they've set up this way for farmers to generate biodiversity credits. But they've also got the demand, and that's the one that you've just mentioned, the biodiversity net gain. So before any development can receive approval, they have to contribute to a biodiversity net gain. If they can't do it on site, then they can actually purchase these credits. Um, now, of course, you've just mentioned this was only passed in 2021. And with biodiversity, well, much like carbon, we've got other issues with measurements. And agreed ways of measuring and if you keep changing the parameters then you can't actually compare one new to the next so it'll be interesting to see what does happen over there, it is too early um, to tell but I would probably be quite positive um, in looking at what they've done because it, it does make sense it is creating that demand it is putting that requirement more broadly not just on farmers and not just creating a benefit for farmers necessarily but saying to um, anybody who wants to um, look at a development in the UK, well, look, there's a biodiversity net gain requirement. You have to contribute some costs to that. Um, And so, you know, I would be hopeful. The other thing about the UK is that they've been talking about um, natural capital and biodiversity for decades. So this just hasn't um, come out of nowhere. It's not something that's just been introduced right before an election um, (laughs) in order to make people happy. It's something that has been discussed and you know they've re- released big reports on both by bio- the economics of biodiversity and natural capital um, and so I'm hopeful you know let's, let's say something positive I'm hopeful that it will have um, a positive impact and potentially can provide lessons to other places in the world of course the UK and Australia are two very different places <laughs>
1: That's for sure, and they have been quite ready to embrace both on the conservative and the uh, other areas of the spectrum of politics in the UK, happy to embrace the reality of climate change long before it's been so polarised in Australia. And of course, we've seen, as you would have watched, tearing your hair out over the last 10 years, Australia's environment laws, which haven't been really strong, but have been watered down, and we've had that really happen in New South Wales, despite all the campaign by ecologists and environmentalists. So it's a frustrating situation.
0: I can certainly sympathise. Yes, I mean, I've been watching it very closely. Um, My PhD was on a mission to trading and that was sort of during the period of the um, introduction. Oh, no, we're not going to introduce it. We're going to take it away in Australia. Oh, no, we will introduce it, but now we'll repeal it. It was all very (laughs) um, frustrating, um, but a bit of a lesson in what not to do.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so it is very difficult. I mean, this this idea of an overall strategic plan um, on so many levels is something we really need to be uh, encouraging in our politicians and in our policy makers. Uh, so it's something that people could think about as they're um, travelling towards that date with the voting booth and... Um, Very, very difficult to know which way to send your vote so that you're going to actually get some concrete action over the next few years. But uh, a good idea, after you've listened to a conversation such as this, Felicity, I would say, to approach your local Member of Parliament if you're confused and find out what their policies are and and what they're um, thinking in terms of protecting biodiversity because it's all very easy in the city to be focusing on some things and forgetting that if the rural sector isn't um, embracing some of these uh, innovations I suppose um, we're all the cities are not going to um, remain viable places for people to live any more than the countryside will be but um Thank you so much for joining us today, Felicity Dean.
0: No, no worries at all, Ruth. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed our conversation. Look, I couldn't agree with you more. It is very easy to talk about this when you're sitting in the city and it's also easy to ignore these sorts of things. Um, and, yeah, it, it would be good to have more information about what the long-term plans are for the Australian landscape and unfortunately um, I don't feel that we have all that information at this point.
1: Hmm. Well, fingers crossed things become clearer over the next couple of years and uh, let's hold the political classes to account and uh, be quite discerning. So thank you so much for helping us think about this and uh, it's a very complicated area, difficult for people to understand and really great to have your clarity with us on Monday Drive. Thanks, Felicity. Absolutely. Thank you, Ruth.
0: you have been listening to eastside radio podcast for selections of more enjoyable content like this visit our website eastsidefm.org and click on podcast